I'm going to miss that sermon bump, aren't you? I have the greatest job in the world. It's like I remember the first meeting I had with the creative team and said, hey, here's how I kind of see this. And, and I said, you know, it'd be cool to have armies rushing each other just like Lord of the Rings in the end. And, and they're just so creative. They figure out ways to come up with this. And it's kind of fun for me because some of the creative team are actually actors in the bumper. But <laughs> what uh, was interesting was we, we played these previews at the Warren. And some of you may have seen them at the Warren. And so we started having people reach out to us and say, wow, we thought this was going to be a movie until we realized it was a sermon series, <laughs> but I hope they went ahead and came anyway. In this last message, we're tackling one of the biggest surprises that I've had through the years as a Christ follower in regard to the events of the last days. Let me give you a little bit of background before we get into the question that I'm referring to. When you study the Bible about the end times, Scripture is pretty clear that you have a seven-year tribulation period, we've covered that, and then you have a thousand-year period in which Jesus reigns on the earth. Sometimes theologians call it the millennium. That's not, that word's not in the Bible per se. It's a combination of two Latin words, mil meaning thousand and anna meaning year. But there's like this thousand-year reign of Christ, and then after that, it's eternity in heaven or on a new earth, as we seem to read about in the book of Revelation. And theologians call that the eternal state. It's totally unimportant that you know those terms. I just want to give them to you so that I can be honest with you that I've always wrestled with a question growing up, listening to my dad and other preachers who preach this out of the Bible. I always wonder, what's the point of the thousand-year reign? Why can't we just go straight to heaven? I mean, why can't we just go straight to the eternal state? I mean, it, it's a cool thought that Jesus is going to rule on the earth and be king, and we're going to have this thousand-year period of time. But I mean, like for me, it seemed kind of pointless. Why can't we just go to the eternal state? Why do we have to have that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in love? Well, if you've been in love, you know that sometimes there are things that are important to the person you love that aren't necessarily important to you. Or at least you don't understand why they're important to you. But here's the thing. If you've been in love, and I have, I'm, I met the love of my life when I was in high school and we got married my junior year in college. You know, there were things that were just important to Mary Alice that I didn't understand, but they were important to me because they were important to her. And then as I began to know her better and understand her better, those things began to be important to me because I understood why they were important on their face. Well, that is what it's like to worship God. You know, worshiping, when we, when, if you think about worshiping today, it could be that you would say, well, Mark, worshiping is like singing. It's the part of the service when I come into New Spring and I sing. And technically that's true because that is worship. Worship in singing is breathing the breath back to God that God breathed into you. But worship is deeper than that. Let me tell you what I believe is the simplest definition of worship. Worship is understanding what is important to God and giving it to him because we understand it's important to him. I, I have friends who say, well, I just don't like the singing part of the service. I like the sermon part of the service. And, and I understand that we have different personality types. And what they mean by that is they enjoy the teaching and they have maybe a little bit more intellectual approach to life. And so I understand why that's more important to them. But at the same time, even if, even if we have that concept, and some of you may even in this room, and you may have even walked in today and you say, well, you know, I don't really get into the music that much, but, you know, when Mark starts to talk, and it could be that you have a different personality type, you have just the reverse feeling. 
But if you've come in today and you say, well, I don't know why the singing is all that important. I just came to learn. Then you need to understand something today. You need to understand it's important to God. And consequently, if you love him, then what's important to him will become important to you. And even if you don't understand it today, maybe someday you'll grow in your understanding and then you will, but until you get to that place, the important thing is to worship God because it's important to him. So when I ask this question, what's the deal with the thousand-year reign of Christ? I'll be honest with you. On its face, I would be perfectly glad just to go to the eternal state. But God has a plan for us, and that is for us to be part of his kingdom for a thousand years. Now let's just talk about why it's important to God before we start breaking this apart. Have you ever noticed that we live in a broken world? I'm assuming you have. That the world that we live in today, for some reason, is just flawed and broken and skewed in a way that doesn't seem to be repairable. For one thing, there's hatred in our world. You know, I never can. Can you understand why there's hatred in our world? I, I don't enjoy hating anyone. I don't enjoy anybody hating me. I don't enjoy seeing anybody else hate anybody else. I like love. love. Here's the thing. If I were purely selfish, I would still be for love, wouldn't you? I mean, I would still want to love people. I would want people to love me. I would want people to love each other. If I were selfish and didn't even believe in God, I would still want love to be what people used in order to function with each other. And yet hatred is so prevalent. We have violence and war, selfishness. A lie will go around the world before truth gets its shirt on. And it isn't just me looking out on this broken world and saying, wow, isn't it terrible everybody's broken out there? Honestly, it's broken on a personal level. I'm 62 years old. First of all, it's hard for me to believe even get those words out of my mouth. I was 28 when I came here, and I'm like, I still feel 28. But you know, honestly, just being real with you, there were things that I would have thought that I would have fixed in my life by the time I turned 62. And yet I still find that I fail in a lot of those areas, and I can't seem to get it right. It is an upside-down broken world, and it happened when Adam and Eve sinned. God built this world. He engineered this world to be what he wanted it to be, but we know that Satan rebelled against God and started his dynasty before the world was created. A third of the angels sided with him, so when God made his world and Adam and Eve were on the world, Satan said, I want that, and he came and he, he swindled our parents out of the kingdom. And basically, they handed kingdom authority over to him. And since that time, and I want to read the statement that I've written so that I can read it to you verbatim. This world has been a story of brokenness, unfinished business, and unrealized potential. If you want to look at the world that we live in today, that is the story of this world. It is broken. It is, there is unfinished business, things that just never seem to be right, and unmet potential. Now, we read about this, and there are many places in the Bible, but for me, this is the clearest, simplest statement as, what, as to what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Theologians will call it the fall. In other words, everything got broken. Uh, mankind got broken. Ecology got broken. The world as we know it got broken. Romans 5 verse 12 says, you know the story of Adam, how it landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death, no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relationships or relations with God in everything and everyone. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape. Now here's the thing, guys. If Jesus Christ didn't come to our world, that would be the epitaph for planet Earth. Sin disturbed relations and death dominated. Isn't, that, isn't it interesting that those two phrases are in that text? 
Sin disturbed relations. And, and that's what's wrong with our world today. It's disturbed relations between us and God. It's disturbed relations with, with each other. This is the reason why we have hate and racism and violence and abuse in our world is that sin has come in and corrupted the creation that God intended. Here is the point. And remember, we're dealing with this question, why the eternal state? It's important to God. Even if it's not important to us, we need to recognize that it's important to him. It starts with this. This world has never been what it was created to be since the Garden of Eden. And that matters to God. The fall... Adam and Eve's sin brought in pain and, and death. But God didn't want to throw us away. So in the midst of this broken world, with the world as it is, kingdom being surrendered over to Satan, in the midst of all this, God has still worked on a plan of redemption in order to give us a second chance at making a choice to do things God's way and follow him. What I'm going to talk about for the next four minutes is some of the most important things that I'll ever say in all my years of ministry. And it's, these are things that just don't get said in our world. And because they don't get said, a lot of people have a misconception about God. So whatever you're doing for the next three or four minutes, I want you just to open your heart to something that doesn't get said enough. Do you realize that when Adam and Eve sinned, God had two options? The first option is to act in his justice and destroy the earth. I mean, after all, it only involves destroying two people and the creation, the creative world, the animal kingdom that he made. But we understand, and I won't say this in the other three services, the animals matter to God. In the book of Jonah, and this is a side trail, and I'm sorry, I'll get right back on the main trail. Didn't mean to say this, but for all of you animal lovers, just smile right now. You'll, like, you'll enjoy this. When, when God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and Jonah preached, if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you. And he wanted God to destroy Nineveh anyway. They were the enemies of Israel. And when they repented, it made Jonah mad. And Jonah was just flipping God off, basically saying, I came here to do your work, and now you've, you've let all these people off the hook. And God said, shouldn't I care about this great city? He said, there are 120,000 children here. And beyond that, the Lord said, a bunch of animals. So God cares about the animal world. But I just want you to know that at this moment, God, as he looked down on the human world, flawed and broken and fallen now, rejecting him, God could have just said, that's it, I'm destroying it, I'm going to let this world spin into a black hole. The other option is he can deal with the loss of the planet, which has now been handed over to Satan, and yet still work and let things play out so that throughout the centuries and millennia, he could work out his plan of redemption. And by making the choice that he made of letting the world continue and continuing his work of redemption in a broken world, it left him open to criticism. It left him vulnerable to criticism. And Satan has exploited that because we have a flawed, broken world that is broken because of sin. Kingdom authority has been surrendered over, surrendered over to Satan. And yet God is still at work. And see, this is where the clash of dynasties comes in. We feel that. Those of us who follow Jesus, we feel God at work in our world. And yet at the same time, it's very clear that this is a broken, flawed system. Like I say, Satan exploits this because, of course, he does the damage, but then when things go wrong, as they will with the damage that he does, he then points out God's work in the world and says, why did God allow that? 
I have good friends who are non-theists. And like I've told you before, both Christians and non-theists all think they have the coup de grace argument, and it's not. But non-theists don't have a whole litany. They don't have a whole library of arguments. They basically have one. And the argument goes like this. I know because I debated this for three hours at Wichita State with a group of friends who are non-theists. But the argument goes like this. Evil exists in the world. You say that your God is all good and all powerful. Ergo, your God is neither, either not all good or not all powerful. And they had this, now it's circular in my mind, but they had this feeling that the very presence of evil proves God doesn't exist. You know better at least now. Because you understand why evil exists and you understand why God is at work in this flawed, broken world. Now here's the thing. The thousand-year reign of Jesus, and this is where we're getting to the point that we started by asking the question, why is it important to God? The thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth is God's way of saying, that's it, enough. It's not going to go on anymore. This clash of dynasties isn't going to continue. The world will be set right in the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Now, in just a few moments, I'm going, to get to the th- I'm going to get to the agenda of King Jesus, what things are going to be like on the earth. But before we get there, I think it's really important for postmodern America and beyond that, postmodern American Christianity, I think it's really important that we understand it is a kingdom. When Jesus comes, he's not coming to take suggestions. He is not coming to take polls like our politicians do. He is not going to measure his likes on social media. He is coming to be King Jesus. He will rule. And I say that for a reason today. You understand that Jesus came, will will have come into our world two times. He came the first time 2,000 years ago to deal with our sin problem. Well, what do we need in order to deal with sin problem. We need somebody to come and identify with us, to be human, to be able to live the life that we can't live and then die the death that we couldn't die. So you understand the first time he came, he didn't come to be a conquering king. He came to be a humble, suffering servant. The next time, however, he comes, he's not coming to be a humble, suffering servant. He is coming to be king of kings and lord of lords. Let me give you a scripture that will help you understand how this juxtaposition works. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible says, Though he was God, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Did you follow that progression? He humbled himself as a servant and came and paid for our sin. And then he rose from the grave. And after that, God elevated him and gave him a name above every name so that everyone will bow to him as king. Tell you why I'm taking this sidetrack today. We live in an age of of so-called Christianity, and it terrifies me because I don't think it's real Christianity. But our churches are populated. I don't think New Spring is, but our churches are populated with people that feel this way. Because God loves us unconditionally and forgives us of every sin, some have taken this quantum fatal leap to suggest that sin must be okay with God, that God is light on sin, 
Listen, if you want to see how Jesus, how God feels about sin, you see Jesus hanging on the cross, paying the price for our sins. I mean, it is true that God loves us unconditionally. It is true that he'll forgive us of every sin. But I think some of us only see Jesus coming in his humility, and there is a feeling among modern Christianity that Jesus is my buddy, and he's good with anything I do. You know, through the years, Christians have looked back on the first coming of Jesus and they've looked at the establishment in Israel, how it rejected Jesus as Messiah because they were expecting a conqueror and instead he came as a servant and Christians have sort of poked at that and said, wow, the the establishment in Israel should have recognized the Messiah. I want to tell you something. It is true that the establishment of Israel did not recognize Jesus the first time he came because they wanted a conqueror and instead he came as a servant. I am concerned that the church won't recognize Jesus because they're expecting him to come as a humble servant and he is going to come as king of kings and lord of lords. That concerns me. Either one will send a person to hell just as fast. Jesus loves you and God loves you and he'll forgive you of anything and he'll help you live a new life, but he's not your buddy. He's not your buddy that'll just say, hey, anything you want to do is okay. That's not Jesus either. And so I just want you to understand that he's coming as a king. What does he look like now? You know, one of the things I think that screws people up is we have all this artwork from the Middle Ages where you see this willowy, swooning Jesus. He just, you know, he looks so frail and it's like, oh, I'm worried about him. I just want to give him a hug. And, and I, I want you to know what Jesus looks like now, okay? I mean, this is in Revelation chapter one. This is a great story to me. John, he's one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, he's part of the inner circle. If you've read the New Testament, you know how the Bible says Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. They kind of like got to see stuff others didn't get to see. Well, this is John. But when Revelation is written, the time frame is probably about 80, 90, and John's about 90 years old. And Jesus has been ascended for 60 years. John's, even he's 90, he's still pastoring. He's pastoring the church at Ephesus. And evidently, his preaching is upsetting the powers that are. And the Roman government decided, we're going to have to do something about it. Wouldn't you like to still be giving the devil fits when you're 90 years old? You know, here's John. He's preaching. He's seen Jesus. And man, he's just letting the hammer down. And the Romans said, oh, you know what? We're going to have to shut him up. And so they, they tried to scald him with boiling oil, and he survived that. And they said, okay, we'll just send him out to this cold rock pile on the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And they said, we're going to shut him up. And God chose to light him up because it was out there on Patmos that God gave him the book of Revelation. Now, with that in mind, I want to call you. I haven't got to the sermon yet, okay? We still have 10 points. That should worry you. It would worry me. I want you to see Jesus now. I want you to know what he's like now. John says, suddenly I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet blast. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was somebody like Jesus. That's the son of man is a reference to Jesus. He looked like Jesus, he said. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like the mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. A sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. John said, when I saw him, I fell dead, or fell like a dead man to my feet. Now, here's the thing I want to get across to you. John, and, John knows Jesus. For three and a half years, he, he went everywhere Jesus went. Hey, for crying out loud, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he turned his mama over to John. 
Hey, that's a pretty good friend. You don't give your mama to somebody unless you really, you're good friends. And yet John, as well as he knew Jesus, said, I turned around and when I saw him, I went over like a timber. He laid his hand on me, John said, and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. Why? Because he went to the cross, and he stole the keys of death from Satan, and then he stole the keys of the grave, and now he is alive forevermore. I just want you to know he is not some willowy, swooning figure who needs a hug. He is king of kings, and he's lord of lords, and I want us in these postmodern days to recognize that we don't have a buddy that we slip our arm around. We have a savior and a king that we kneel before. May God help us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ get out of this postmodern haze of anything anybody wants to do is okay and let us worship our king before he comes. <laughs> 10 ways Jesus will change the world. If you don't like the world very much, I, my staff, I'm sure they've heard me say that so many times. We get into staff meetings and we'll talk about people here at New Spring who are going through hard times and I don't know how many times they've heard me say, I don't like this world very much. Well, I'm going to like this one. Real quick, I've got 14 minutes to give you 10 points. You ready? <laughs> Let's get on our horses and ride. Here's the first one. Uh, and again, you're going to see a lot of Bible here because this is just stuff in the Bible that for some crazy reason churches don't pay any attention to. We are today. You ready? Here's number one. I've already covered it. Just want you to know Jesus will rule. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we use this verse every Christmas, don't we? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Love this, and the government will be upon his shoulder. In the, when, when the, and you guys are all too young to remember this. I was only four. But when the Bay of Pigs went wrong, John F. Kennedy gave probably one of the greatest press conferences of all time, taking responsibility for what happened. His numbers shot up after he did this. In fact, he told his brother Bobby, he said, the more I screw up, the more they like me. But he, he said something that I find really interesting. He said, I am the responsible figure of government. Well, hey, I want you to know that when Jesus comes back to rule, he will be the responsible figure of government. The government will be up on his shoulder. It's not going to be mob justice. It's not going to be the UN. It's not going to be some elected body of legislators. He, the government will be up on his shoulder. Number two, there will be peace. Do you know there's never been peace in the history of the world? It's just for some reason nations can't live with nations. And yet in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, the Bible says the Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. Well, somebody could say, well, we have something right now that does that. We have the United Nations. Oh, yeah? How do you feel about that? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not poking fun. I mean, when Woodrow Wilson had his idea for the League of Nations after World War I, it was a good idea, and I understand that. It's well-intentioned. United Nations is well-intentioned, but you know what? The same nations that can't get along in the world can't get along in the UN. But the Bible says that when Jesus comes, he will mediate between the nations and settle disputes. Well, how well will that go? Read with me. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation, nor train for war anymore. I love this. You know what? The nations will just say, well, that guy Jesus over there, man, he's, he settled our problems. I, you know, all this defense spending, all these armaments that we're spending money for, what if we just took all of those resources and turned them into agricultural implements? I'd like to live in that world, wouldn't you? Let's read on. There will be justice. The truth of the matter is, 
there's different justice for different people in our world today, which is, that's the quintessential definition of injustice. For people who have money, there's one kind of justice. For people who are poor, there's a different kind. For people who are in one socioeconomic place, there's one kind of justice. For people who are in different socioeconomic places, there's a different kind of justice. And we would be most naive if we did not recognize that as fact. But when Jesus comes, it won't matter how much money you have. It won't matter where you come from, where you live, where you grew up. There will be justice. Let me read this. I love this. Isaiah 11:3. He will not judge by appearance. Well, that's what we do today, isn't it? Whether we're talking about the court system or we're talking about the way people look at each other in third grade. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. I love that. Hey, do you mind me sharing a pet peeve with you? One of the things that's happening in our postmodern culture today, and one of the issues with post, and, I, and I understand postmodernism has an application for art and different enterprises. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about uh, social postmodernism. And in social postmodernism, the quintessential thought is that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. I want to tell you one thing I find terrifying, and I'm hearing this a lot today, is it'll be someone saying, well, he told his truth. Or she told her truth. That is demonic. There is no such thing as his truth or her truth. There is only the truth. I mean, can you imagine going into the courtroom and the bailiff saying, do you promise, do you swear to tell your truth? Your whole truth? And nothing but your truth? See what I'm saying? The thing about it is there's only truth and lie. That's it. And what I'm saying to you is this, or what the Word of God is saying is that when Jesus comes, it will be the truth. Don't, don't let someone say, well, Lord, this was my truth. The Lord's going to say, all that matters is the truth, the truth. Number four, no one will be harmed in Jesus' kingdom. I mean, we've already talked about his justice, but look at this. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. During the millennium, the lions will be vegans. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. And just to expand on that, verse 8 says, And a great road will go through that once deserted land. It will be called the highway of holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. Fools will never walk there. There will be no other dangers. New spring heads up, please. And all of you watching online. This is brilliant. If you think about the damage that is done to people by people in our world, it's those two categories. People who are evil-minded, who actually mean harm, and foolish people, people that just don't know what they're doing. Isn't that true? I mean, just think about all the damage that's been done in your life. It's either been done by people who meant to do harm, are by people who were just foolish. And the Bible is saying in the Lord's kingdom, the world is going to be filled with people who truly know God, not religious people, not people who claim to know God. I've seen a lot of those people do a lot of damage. It's going to be filled with people that really know God. And there won't be anyone traveling this highway who has evil intentions or anyone who's foolish. Number five, I don't know why this is my personal favorite, but I just love this one. It's a world where people stream out to hear Jesus give life coaching. Hey, we're about to do a series of life coaching. Starts out this next weekend with you times two. But 
Hey, this is even better. In Micah chapter 4, the Bible says the mountains of the Lord's temple will be on the highest mountain. There will be a steady stream of people going there. People from many nations will go there and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. Then God will teach us his way of living and we'll follow him. Can you hear people in the millennium all over the world saying, where are you going on vacation? I'm going to Jerusalem. Why are you going to Jerusalem? Man, I just want to go hear that man talk. And my wife and I, we're just, we're just going to go hear him talk and give us coaching for knowing how to live. You know why that's important? Because you are the people you listen to. You are who you listen to. And in that day, man, people will listen to Jesus. And I think it's cool because the Bible suggests that not only will he be teaching and coaching there personally with technology like we have it today. I mean, wouldn't that be great to get out your iPhone and check out Jesus? I'm all over that. Number six, there will be no physical or emotional challenges in Jesus' kingdom. Jeremiah 30, verse 17. Anybody here today, you don't have to raise your hand, but your body's just never going to be right again in this world. Maybe it was an injury. Maybe it was diabetes or cancer. Maybe it's just a, something you were born with. But in the kingdom, everything is going to be right physically. I love Jeremiah 30, 17. The Lord said, I'll give you back your health. Who does that speak to today? I'll give you back your health and heal your wounds. The eyes of the blind will be open so they can see. The ears of the deaf will be open so that they can hear. Crippled people will dance like deer. And those who can't speak now will use their voice to sing happy songs. But when we talk about things not being right in our lives... It's one thing to talk about physical illnesses, but I probably have some brothers and sisters here today who have emotional disorders. I do. I've lived my life with an emotional, with anxiety disorder. I've lived my life being a poster child for ADD. And I don't know how many of you struggle with similar things. Some of you struggle with depression or some form of depression. Some of you may deal with bipolar disorder. Isn't it strange? All of us who deal with an emotional disorder, we understand what those who don't deal with them don't understand. Is there anybody here where someone has said, just snap out of it? And what they don't understand is that you would like to snap out of it more than anybody else in the world. If you knew how to snap out of it, you'd have snapped a long time ago. But look at what the Bible says about the kingdom of Jesus. The Bible says, these, the ransomed of the Lord, will go home along that road to Zion, singing the songs of everlasting joy. For them, all sorrow and sighing will be gone forever. Only joy and gladness will be there. Oh, if you deal with an emotional disorder, doesn't that fall on you like a healing rain? Only joy and gladness. Some of us have never known what it was like to get up in the morning and not be greeted by anxiety. Some of you know what it, you don't know what it's like to have a day where you didn't at least be concerned that depression might overwhelm you like a wave out of nowhere. But in this day, we keep Jesus writes, He will not only bring healing to our bodies, but healing to our minds. Four minutes. I gotta go. We still have four. We gotta do a minute apiece, okay? I'll do these real quickly. Number seven, we get to be staffers for the king. I've been getting ready for this event. I've talked to a lot of staffers and good staffers who serve 
uh, the men and women who are elected officials. Well, hey, I love this. When Jesus reigns, we get to be staffers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, it says we will reign with him. And we get to like administrate in different parts of the world. I don't know about you, but I have asked the Lord, I put in my request to be close to a beach because I love beaches and the Lord stuck me as far from a beach as he possibly could. No, I'm just joking about that. Wherever I serve him, it'll be fine. I'll probably be right here in Kansas. <laughs> and that'll be okay. Number eight, real quickly, I need to let you know something. The millennium is going to be populated by two people in two situations. There will be those of us who have been taken to heaven, will be in our eternal bodies. There will be people who will live through the tribulation who will go into the millennium with bodies like we have today. So consequently, many children are going to be born in the millennium. Now, I don't know, I, I, boy, I'm not going to say this in the other three services, and I'm really out on a limb right now, so please don't take me for face value. This is just what I think personally from what I put together. I really believe that children who didn't get to live in this life, I, I really wonder if we'll have the opportunity to raise them during the millennium. But that's just a theory, it's just a thought, I don't know that. But I do know this. I know that children will be born in the millennium. In Isaiah 65, verse 23, they will not work in vain. Their children will not be doomed to misfortune. For the children are blessed by the Lord, and their children too will be blessed. Do you remember how Jesus treated children when he was on the earth? How he took them in his lap and he blessed them? That's what it's going to be like for, chick for kids who are born in the millennium. We'll talk about that someday. Number nine, because there will be some who go into the millennium in their earthly bodies, lifespans will, be, will dramatically increase. Now, that's not for us because when we get into the millennium, our lifespan is eternal. But for those who live through the tribulation into the millennium, lifespans will dramatically increase. Isaiah 65, verse 20, no longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they've lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100, for my people will live as long as trees. Now, some of you have read in the book of Genesis where there were people who lived 900 years, 930, Methuselah, 969. And there are people who look at that and say, well, I don't know. That sounds a little fanciful to me. Do you realize that scientists still don't know why we age? Our human engineering doesn't, doesn't reveal why we age. It was like we were built not to age. Best guess they can come up with, and I think they're probably right. Best, they, best guess they can come up with is there little fringes on the bottom of the DNA molecule called telomeres, and they shorten as the DNA molecules replicate. Looks like we weren't intended to age. For all of us who are aging. <laughs> but according to Scripture, this is awesome. People are going to live for many, many years in that. Number 10, and I'll get through with this, there will be ecological restoration I mean, God gave us the responsibility at first to manage the resources of the world, and ecology should be something that we're concerned about. And we understand that this world has been abused ecologically. And we've already seen how that the Lord will restore the animal kingdom, but I want you to see the rest of this. The Bible says, even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of God. So what a world. Can I go today? Well, you know what? We could be minimum of seven years from that moment. Because we know that the Rapture, the evacuation occurs at the beginning of the tribulation. Jesus comes back with us at the end of the tribulation, seven years. So we could be as close to seven years from there. I don't know. 
But I do want to get back to the point that I came out with. Why is this important to God? Well, I hope that I've put on my old debate skills from high school and college and I've made a compelling case. I hope I've unpacked for you a case that makes sense. But in case I haven't, how about I just give you a scripture where God says, this is why it's important. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the Bible is the chapter about the resurrection. I've conducted over a thousand funerals and probably a good part of them I've given some scripture from 1 Corinthians 15. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where God is talking about the resurrection, he goes off into the subject as to why we're having this thousand year reign of Christ. And for me, this is cool beyond belief. Check this out and we'll be through. The Bible says in verse 22, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, that's the fall, we talked about that, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. You could, you could read that there is an order to the clash of dynasties. There is an order to the last days. That's a huge line. Check this out. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come. When he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father. Now, after that thousand years, he's going to turn the kingdom back to the Father. Having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. Here's our answer. Verse 25. For because Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It'll be destroyed for us when Jesus comes back in the rapture. But there will be people who will die during the millennium. When the last person dies in the millennium, that'll be the last person who ever dies. Verse 27, for the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, speaking of Christ, it doesn't include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Then, when all things, at the end of the millennium, when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. When Adam pulled that fruit off the garden, out of the tree, There was a rebellion against God. It is God's wish to get it back to what it was before we sinned. Now, I want, you, I want to say this to you, and I'll be finished. Never believe a preacher when he says he'll be finished. He intends to be, but... How does that sound to you? I mean, take a deep breath and really take that in. God, totally supreme over everything... Everywhere. Sound like heaven to you? Does to me. Well, that sounds like hell to some people. I think it sounds like hell to a lot of people. That's what C.S. Lewis talked about. I mean, the idea of God being overthing everywhere, that, is like, that sounds like hell. If it sounds like heaven, you'll be there. If it sounds like hell, you'll be there. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever submitted your life to God's plan of redemption? 
where you've said, I know I'm a flawed, broken sinner. I'm in the wrong kingdom, but I want to be transferred out. And I understand that God had a plan, and he brought his son into the world, and he lived the life I can't live. He was perfect. And then he died the death that wouldn't matter if I did die. And then he arose from the grave, and he makes a deal. There's an offer on the table that anyone who wants to can transfer out of the dynasty of darkness and transfer into the dynasty of light. And you can do it today. Hey, see, the thing of it is, I don't have to wait for Jesus to come to be my king. He's already my king. He became my king at the age of eight years old when I bowed my head on the playground of my Forest Hill Elementary School in Fort Worth, Texas, and I invited him into my life. That's when he became my king. I'm looking forward to the coronation, but he's my king. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me. I receive Jesus as my Savior, and I receive him as my King. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just pray with me, any guest services, any, any info center, you just go there right now and say, I pray with Mark. I have a gift box. It's got a Bible like I preach from, some, a book I wrote, and some cool stuff that'll help you. Nobody will hassle you. They just want to give it to you. All you got to do is say, I pray with Mark. Thank you so much. We'll see you next weekend. <laughs>